You're listening to Experts in Their Field, a podcast from the Agricultural Science Association, generously sponsored by Ulster Bank. Hello, listeners. My name is Anne-Marie Butler, and I'm the president of the Agricultural Science Association. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode nine in our ASA podcast series, Experts in Their Field. In this episode, ASA past president, Karina Pierce was delighted to catch up with Michael Miley, ASA President for 2000-2001. Originally from a farm in Rahara, County Roscommon, Michael brings listeners on a journey spanning decades of agriculture, education, media and agri-communications. ASA is delighted to feature Michael in our podcast series. We thank him for his time and wish him and his family the very best for the future. Hi, Michael. It's great to speak with you today and thank you very much for agreeing to take part in the ASA podcast series. I suppose the beginning is as good a place as any to start. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself and where you grew up? Well, thanks very much, Karina, for the opportunity. Uh, I grew up in a little parish called Rahara in uh, South Roscommon. I'm one of, fam- one of a family of eight, uh, six sisters and one brother. I went to the local national school. And then I got a scholarship for my secondary education from the County Council uh, and I went as a boarder uh, to Summerhill College in Sligo. So you can imagine a 13-year-old child who was rarely out of Rahara, bar the occasional few days holidays with his granny, how big a shock it was uh, to find yourself uh, in a dormitory with 30 other young fellows. I remember uh, waking up the first morning and I really thought my life had ended. But I did adapt well and generally I enjoyed my five years there and I don't think I suffered any lasting damage. I'm sure some of my family and others might disagree violently with that. <laughs> I, was just, I was just going to say, so from, from the boarding school in Sligo then you went on to study agricultural science in UCG and on to, to UCD. So the structure of the ag programme was very different at that time. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and also why the decision to study agricultural science? Well, I had decided that I wanted to be either a teacher or to do uh, agricultural science. I'm not sure uh, what the relationship between both is, but that's what I decided to do. I did get a call to training after doing my leaving, which would enable me to go to St. Patrick's College in Drumcondra uh, to do teacher training. But I also got a university scholarship awarded again by the County Council. So I decided to do agricultural science. And I went to University College Galway for the first two years. It was 45 miles away uh, from my home. And uh, you could do the first year, two years at that stage in UCG, also in UCC. And I must say, uh, UCG was a superb place to be at that stage. There were only about 2,200 students when I was there. You knew everyone, and it was great crack. Uh, I remember in my second year, I shared a chalet in Wood Key with uh, two other guys, uh, one was repeating four starts for the fifth time and the other for the second time. But I'm glad to say that uh, both of them have done, in spite of their failure in earlier life, they've done extraordinarily well. Uh, I got involved heavily in student politics and debating in UCG. I was elected to the Student Representative Council and I also played uh, basketball for the college, which added to my enjoyment. 
But then towards the end of uh, my second year in UCG, Professor J.B. Rowan from UCD arrived on campus. And his mission was to see if I and my colleagues had the required practical knowledge in agriculture. And after interviewing me, he decided I was a no-fit state to be let into third year. So I was sentenced to a year's practical experience, which I did in Athenry Agricultural College. And I think you soldiered there with a few well-known names in the industry, did you? I did indeed. There were eight of us. There were eight of us out of 27 in total in my class, uh, second year university students, uh, who had either come from UCG or UCC. Uh, one of them was Con Lucy, who went on uh, to uh, become the chief economist, uh, a very, very well-liked and highly reputable chief economist with the IFA. Uh, another of my colleagues was Michael Berkeley, who had come, uh, who had come from Leaving Cert uh, to uh, Athenry College. Michael, of course, went on to do a course in pig management and eventually uh, rose to the highest level in the IFA. And up to Dublin then with you, and you qualified in, in 72, but UCD wasn't the Belfield that we would know or many listeners uh, to this would know. You you would have spent time in the Albert College and oh, yes. in Lyons Farm. Yeah, yeah. All of, our, all of our lectures in both my third year and final year were in uh, the Albert College. And we then went, as students still do, uh, to Lyons Estate for practical work and for some uh, lectures uh, in final year. But we were typically three days a week uh, in the Albert College, which of course now is uh, DCU uh, in in uh, in Glass Neville. And uh, that made life a bit difficult because you were very secluded and there wasn't much opportunity uh, to interact with students uh, from other faculties. But I used to study uh, in UCD and Earlsford Terrace, so that gave me uh, well, that gave me an opportunity to acquire uh, a wide network of contacts. I also got involved in the Agricultural Science Society, uh, which is now called and has been for many years called AGSOC, and uh, I was selected as a member of the debating team that year. Uh, I was also uh, elected auditor, uh, which I. Uh, was in uh, my final year. And that was kind of unusual for someone who had spent the first two years uh, in UCG. And that certainly uh, made for a fairly hectic uh, final year for me. Very good. And and I suppose then moving out of college, um, you went on to have a really interesting career. I, I think it's fair to say with many twists and turns. And what mo- many won't be aware of is the time that you spent in RTE, where you worked as a presenter and a producer of farm programmes. How did that come about? Well, after, before I qualified at that stage, uh, we did our final exams uh, in September. And before I qualified, I had actually got a job with a company called Handy Zabruski, who as well as running a, a fairly large pig processing plant, they also ran a number of pig units. And I think my job was assistant pig manager, and I was due to start in around mid-October. But a day after doing my final exams, I got a call inviting me into RTE. Uh, there was a vacancy there because Matt Dempsey, who's well known to all ASA members, who had been in charge of radio agri programs, was leaving uh, to join the Farmers Journal. And there were about 10 
other candidates there. And we had two days of interviews, voice tests, writing, interviewing skills. And as a result of which, to my eternal surprise, I was offered the job. So that changed the entire direction uh, of my career in a rather unexpected way. And just thinking about the time that you joined RTE, Michael, it was a few months before Ireland joined the EEC. So an extraordinary time to be involved in agriculture and, and a very different Ireland at that stage also. Hugely different, very different Ireland, agriculturally, economically, and indeed media-wise. I mean, it might shock young people today to uh, be told that RTE Radio 1 was the only radio station in Ireland at the time. Well, actually, Radio Nogreth came on the air the year I joined, but it was almost 10 years later before uh, 2FM was launched and almost 20 years before commercial, national and local radio stations were, uh, were licensed. So the broadcast media landscape was very, very different to what it is today. And when I joined... Uh, Agriculture, there were three weekly agricultural programs on RTE presented by such luminaries as Michael Dillon, uh, Paddy O'Keefe and Peter Murphy. And also there were short farming slots into a music program at 8.30 every morning. Uh, in fact, Morning Ireland didn't, hadn't arrived at that time and wouldn't have arrived for many years later. So my responsibility was to ensure that all of this output got on air and was of an acceptable standard. And you're dead right. There were hugely exciting times to be involved in the media. I mean, we were just joining the EEC. We did so on the 1st of January, uh, 1973. Agriculture was huge news. It was on the front page of national newspapers regularly three or four days a week. The monthly meetings of the EEC agricultural ministers were seen as massive events. Uh, there was a big lift in farm confidence and in farm incomes. And while there was a big slump in beef prices in, in 74, 75, and some farmers lost heavily, the markets did recover rapidly. There was major investment on farms by supported by what was then called the Farm Modernization Scheme. There were huge developments in the agri-food uh, sector, particularly uh, dairy and beef. And at that, for example, at that time, farmers controlled almost 60% of beef processing through three co-ops, Dover Meats, Cork Marts, IMP and Golden Vale Marts. And that began to change in the 1970s when Clover Meats collapsed and a decade or so later, all meat processing was privately owned. Yeah, extra extraordinary. Um, I think your your a key program at the time was it was Farm Diary. Um, you might tell us a little bit about sort of the evolution of that, and and also you 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 worked with a, another well known ASA member, Jimmy Brett, during that time, and and went on to be lifelong friends. Indeed, yeah. Well, because agriculture was such a big issue uh, throughout the early seventies, uh, Joe Murray, who was my boss and the head of agricultural programs and radio radio and TV and RTE at the time, and myself, we proposed that RTE radio should broadcast a daily agricultural news program. And the powers that be in RTE readily agreed. And Farm Diary, it was called, came on air in April 1975. It was a 10 minutes hard news program broadcast Monday to Friday at 6.20 p.m. It was actually modeled on a BBC Radio 4 program which was broadcast daily at 6.30 in the morning. 
And that started in April of 1975. So we needed extra hands very, very urgently. And in the autumn of 1975, after completing his final year exams, Jimmy Brett joined us. And I must say we worked extraordinarily well together. And the program became compulsive listing for many involved in the agri-food, uh, in the agri-food sector. And importantly, it also led to a very close friendship with Jimmy and his family, which I'm glad to say still exists today. Of course, you had the experience as well of, of, uh, of working closely with Jimmy in your early career, didn't you, Karina? I certainly did, uh, straight out of college. Um, you yourself and Jimmy tell a great story um, from that time about the Pope and the, uh, the Bacon Commission. So before we leave <laughs> this part of your career, Michael, oh, you might tell us or might share that with us. Yes, in 1978, there was a Pope called John Paul II, and then uh, John Paul I, I beg your pardon. And, and after 34 days in office, the poor man died from an aneurysm. So in October 1978, uh, there was an election in Rome for a new Pope. And I think on the 16th, 17th of October, at about five to six or six o'clock in the evening, the white smoke emerged out of the Sistine Chapel. And Kevin O'Kelly, the RTE religious correspondent at the time, came live on the air. And there was great excitement as to who this Pope is. Would he be the first non-Italian Pope in 450 plus years? And at about 18 or 19 minutes past six, his name emerged. Cardinal Wojtyla of Poland, who was indeed the first non-Italian Pope for uh, 456 years, I think. So Kevin O'Kelly eased a little bit into our program at 20 past six. So the announcer came on and said, and now a little bit later than usual, here is Jimmy Brett with this evening's edition of Farm Diary. And Mr. Brett comes on and he says, good evening. And they also have a new man today in the Pigs and Bacon Commission. <laughs> Fergus Morton had been appointed uh, Chief Executive of the Pigs and Bacon Commission. Uh, Michael Dillon, who did livestock prices at the end of our program most evening. Michael Dillon, you could smoke in a studio at that stage. And Michael Dillon was rolling his own cigarette and had it in his mouth. And he got such a shock, the cigarette fell out of his mouth. Brett <laughs> 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 said this. <laughs> so everything was, we finished the program and we went up to uh, the office, our open plan office. And in, in RTA, the phone started ringing. And of course, Muggins here had a job because none of the other two would answer the phone of, answer the, uh, of answering the phone to extraordinarily irate uh, listeners who thought it was such a discourtesy and such an insult to the Pope and uh, the Catholic Church. Uh, I mean, I can imagine uh, it actually died down after a day and nobody was reprimanded and there was no, there was no problem. Can you can imagine if that happened today, uh, with the plethora of social media uh, that is out there? I would imagine. I think Joe uh, Duffy and Livrine would would have two days of a program out of it. 
Yeah, exactly. And again, tells a story of a very different Ireland. Um, after, I mean, there was a, a decision then, obviously, you left RTE um, and, and spent some time then in print media and so on. Why the decision at that stage to, to leave RTE and what was a very successful career and a very successful programme ongoing? I really cannot answer it. I just got, I got itchy feet at the time and decided that I'd better do something else. And I... And it wasn't that I wasn't enjoying it. Uh, I was enjoying it immensely. So I applied for and I got a job with a company called Nitrogen Air Insurance, which was a semi-state company set up in the early 1960s to manufacture uh, nitrogen fertilizer. And it was about to open a major plant in Cork, manufacturing urea using natural gas from the concealed gas field. And my job was to be in promoting their products. So I went in there. I was actually offered the job before going in, when I committed myself to go to an ET of agricultural correspondent in the RTE newsroom, but I felt I'd made a commitment uh, to NET and I wanted to get a taste anyway for life in the commercial world. Now, my taste didn't last that long because after less than uh, 12 months in NET, I was offered the job as editor of a new national uh, newspaper called the Sunday Journal. Uh, it was Sunday newspaper aimed at a farming stroke rural audience and I decided to take the plunge because I still mm -hmm. the journalism bug still hadn't left me I suppose and I began building building a team of journalists the paper was launched three months later and I must say it sold quite well with sales of about up to 40,000 copies a week in the early months but, but as with many new ventures the money began to run out and while there was additional investors ready to come in, there was a row at board level over apportioning the shares. And the upshot was that the original investors, who were London Irish business people, pulled out. The paper was taken over by the PMPA. PMPA. Uh, at that time, the biggest insurance company in Ireland, which, of course, a number of years later went into liquidation. And we're all still paying for it through an insurance levy. And it was run by a man called Joe Moore. And it became very clear very early that Mr. Moore and myself didn't see eye to eye on the editorial direction of the paper. So I decided to get out. Uh, but before that, I did have I did apply for and was offered the job of head of public relations with the newly formed ACOT. So, I mean, somebody who had uh, one child and my wife Margaret was expecting our second child. I wasn't about to commit kamikaze, so I decided to take. I decided to take out my insurance policies before I uh, announced I was leaving. And I suppose a very significant part of your career, then, Michael, be really between ACOT, which you joined, as you said, the end of 1980, and then into Chagas, which you were in really until 2004. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I joined ACOT, you're right, in, uh, at the end of 1980. And as most people know, ACOT brought together the advisory services provided by the 27 county committees of agriculture, the specialist advisory services uh, provided by the department, and the agricultural and horticultural colleges, which were run by the department. And they brought all of those strands into one national organisation. Uh, the first director was a man called Dr. Tom Walsh, who had been director of the Agricultural Institute are on Forest and Oonton since its establishment in uh, 1958. 
a man of boundless energy, enthusiasm, and vision. I never came across anything like the man, despite the fact that he was actually 65 years of age when he was appointed uh, director of ACOT. And when he retired in 1982, Liam Downey was appointed uh, director. And it, it was a very exciting time uh, to be involved in the development of a new organization. Suppose my job was to ensure that the work and the activities of ACOT were portrayed in the best possible light through the media and other communication channels. Uh, it was a time, a difficult time in farming, the early 80s. Farm incomes were falling. There were 10,000 farmers got into financial difficulty and around 5,000 had to get loan write-offs of various sizes from the banks. And then, of course, in 1974, uh, milk quotas were introduced and this changed totally uh, the focus of advice. But ACOT had many good achievements. I mean, it, it did introduce uh, specialization into advisory services, which was uh, a major advance at the time. And I suppose one of its biggest achievements was the introduction of the Green Cert, which for the first time established a national uh, framework for, uh, educate, for the education of young farmers. Now, uh, another big issue that emerged during Nacos time was that <clears throat> charging for services came in. Before that, all advisors provided a free service. And this, uh, this created major problems for many excellent advisors who probably were in the field for 20 or more years and were providing a free service to farmers. And they found it extraordinarily difficult to ask farmers money uh, for money for their advice, even though their advice was well worth the money. And yeah, exactly. I, I, never, never easy uh, decisions to to make either. And in in 1988, the I suppose circle had had turned fully again, and ACOT and AFT were merged. Um, so that brought about Chagas, obviously, and and uh, you were in Chagas then for a, a good portion of your career, except for a, a three year gap. That we'll talk about where you you spent time uh, with with Minister uh, for Agriculture Ivan Yates at the time. Okay, yeah, well, you're dead right. 1987, the national finances were in a perilous state, and one of the measures to deal with the crisis, the government decided, was to merge ACOT and AFT, and prior a few months prior to the merger. Uh, in the budget, which was announced by the Minister for Finance, who was Ray McSharry at the time, uh, the budget for both organisations was cut by 40%. And a voluntary retirement scheme was then introduced for all staff, irrespective of who they were, what they did, or their years of service. And 900 people opted to take voluntary retirement, the biggest number by far from the research tide, which lost all of its uh, senior research managers. So the birth of Chagas was a very difficult one, Karina. I was appointed head of public relations. Uh, my responsibilities were expanded from advice and training now to include all elements of agriculture and food research. So this represented uh, an exciting challenge, even, the, even though there were difficult times. And after a couple of years, the financial deficit was eliminated through a number of big supplementary grants, and then through the ingenuity, I must say, of Liam Downey, who took over as director when Pierce Ryan 
the first director of Chagas retired in 1994, a lot of EU, EU structural funds came Chagas's way, and that led to the restoration of quite a solid research program. And there was also a major orientation of advisory services through group discussions. And of course, the introduction of area aid and schemes such as REPS led to a big increase by farmers for advisory support. And during then the period 94 to 97, then you were program manager uh, with um, Ivan Yates. So it's an opportunity many don't get or don't take, whichever. Tell us a little bit about that time, because obviously there's an extraordinary period in there where, where, where BSE was, I suppose, the, the issue of the day that you might talk to us about. Yeah, well, again, this was something I had no ambition to achieve at all. Uh, but in December 1994, about a week after the rainbow government involving Fine Gael, Labour and Democratic Left was formed with John Bruton as uh, Taoiseach and Ivan Yates uh, appointed as Minister of Agriculture, I got a call inviting me in to meet Minister Yates. I didn't know the man at all. And I went in and I met him and he offered me uh, a job as his program manager. Now, I, twice before I had been uh, offered jobs in the political sphere, uh, once in 1980, <clears throat> excuse me, once in 1980 by Mark Clinton, uh, who had been elected to uh, a former minister, who had been elected a member of the European Parliament in uh, the first direct elections to the European Parliament in 1979. And he wanted me to go to Brussels as his personal assistant. And then in 1984, Austin DC had offered me a job as uh, his advisor when he was Minister for Agriculture. But both, both offers didn't suit me at the time for all kinds of reasons. But this time I said yes immediately and joined uh, Ivan in very early January of uh, 1995. Uh, my job was called Program Manager, which effectively meant I was responsible for coordinating on the department side the program for government, and it involved meeting uh, my equivalents from who worked with every other minister once a week. And I learned a lot about how government operates and how the apparatus of state operates. It was a busy but very very enjoyable time. Of course, I had many other duties, but basically my job was, as it is when you work with a minister, to do whatever uh, the minister wanted you to do. Uh, and as you rightly say, one of the big, big issues during uh, his period as, as minister was the BSE crisis, which emerged in March 1996, when it, the British announced a link, a scientific link between BSE in animals and CJD in humans. And that led to an enormous six months crisis at 24 uh, a 24-7 crisis, and you never knew any more you woke up what new was going to emerge. But one thing that struck me during that period was the enormous skill of the senior officials in the, uh, in the Department of Agriculture. One could not be impressed with the level of skill, their work, their work ethic, and their ability to work around the clock when required. So we are, and I think that still applies, we're still very lucky in this country to have 
a cohort of superb public servants, particularly at the top end. Absolutely. And there must have been huge learnings in that then for you to take back into Chagas then after your time, which was 97, wasn't it, when you when you moved back to Chagas? That's right. I moved back to Chagas after the uh, 1997 uh, election led to a change of government. Uh, the outgoing government fell short, I think, by two seats uh, <clears throat> in forming a government. So uh, uh, Bertie Ahern came in as Taoiseach and uh, I was out of a job. And when you're in that game, you are out of a job. The minute the new minister comes in, you better have your desk cleared out or else somebody else will clear it out for you. Well, I went back to Chagas and I did benefit enormously, I think, in my work afterwards, uh, for the number of years I stayed with Chagas, uh, from the experiences I had in the uh, in the Department of Agriculture and uh, and with Ivan Yates. And moving on from Chagas, then you spent some time, then I suppose, um, with Pembroke Communications. Um, tell us a little bit about, I suppose, the decision to move on from Chagas in, into Pembroke. Yeah, in 2004, uh, Chagas decided, incorrectly, to move its head office from uh, Sandy Mount Avenue in Dublin to the Oak Park Research Centre in Carlow. And an opportunity presented itself for me to get out. And while I was still really enjoying the work and highly committed, I said, look, this is a great opportunity to do something else for the rest of your life. And I decided that I would make the bold move of going out and setting up, setting myself up as a public relations uh, consultant. I had a very good friend at the time called, and still is, called Colin Cronin, who ran a company called Pembroke Communications. And he said to me, look, why don't you come in and join us and we'll give you a desk. So I joined him as a consultant. That enabled me to have my own clients, and I then developed a financial arrangement with the company for office space and services. And thankful to the many companies, organizations, and individuals who had sufficient confidence in me uh, to give me work for the past 50 or 16 years, I worked with an enormous number of companies and organizations primarily in, in the agriculture, forestry, uh, rural development uh, sector. Uh, but I cut back now a lot, Karina. If you know by looking at me, you say it's about time for a fellow like this to cut back. I've cut back a lot in recent years. You're too busy farming in Roscommon, but might have oh, well, been... I do that. Well, the past couple of years, yeah, I'm, uh, I am I decided to do whatever little bit of work I do. I do it from home. So at least I was used to the solitary lifestyle when the lockdown hit us last year. And I also have more time for farming, which I continue to do a little bit of on the uh, family farm in Roscommon. Um, before we finish our conversation today, I, I can't let you go, obviously, without talking about your longstanding involvement with the ASA and, and also your term as president in 2000-2001. I think every presidency has its challenges, but yours might just about top the polls. So can you tell us a little bit about sort of your focus during your ASA presidency and, and some of the challenges over that time? Okay. Yeah, well, I'm obviously a lifelong member of the ASA. Uh, 
but I, I joined the council in 1997 uh, with no ambition whatsoever to become president. But I was elected president and served as president 2000 and 2001. And the first six months of my presidency, I put huge emphasis on uh, increasing membership, uh, which had slipped quite considerably over the previous decade or so. And I must say, me and members of the council, we had considerable success in achieving that. And then in March of 2001, during my presidency, we were hit with the foot and mouth crisis. And that, unfortunately, uh, forced us to cancel a number of events uh, which we had scheduled for the March-April uh, period. Uh, nowadays, <laughs> you, you can run them on, uh, online, uh, but there was no such facility that time. Then in September, uh, our conference was scheduled for Friday the 14th of September uh, in the Great Southern, Core of Great Southern Hotel in Galway. We had a very, very large booking uh, of people committed. We had a, a big banquet organized. And on Tuesday, the 9th, or the 11th of September, that dread, dreadful tragedy happened in New York, 9-11. And I remember at quarter past two being in my office on that day, and a friend of mine who worked in the Human Resources uh, Division in Chagas stuck her head on the door and said, did you hear or did you see what happened? in New York. And I turned on a TV, which I had in my office at the time, and we saw, as I, as I turned it on, the second plane had crashed into the twin, into the second, into the second twin tower. Uh, the next day, the Taoiseach and Bertie O'Hearn and the government uh, designated the following Friday, the day of our conference, as a national day of mourning. So we had to cancel the conference at extraordinary no, uh, short notice at 4.30 that afternoon, we made an announcement the conference was, uh, was postponed. Uh, but through an awful lot of luck, I was able to reconvene the conference for exactly four weeks later on Friday, the 12th of October, in the same hotel with exactly the same panel of speakers, some from New York, Paris, Geneva, we, we, we only missed out on one, the Irish EU commissioner, uh, David Byrne at the time, who unfortunately couldn't read or couldn't join us in October because he had to go to Washington. But as, uh, we had a superb conference, uh, over 300 people in attendance, 250, I think, at the banquet. So uh, everything worked out in the, uh, well in the end, but it was some, uh, it was some difficult uh, period. Yeah, incredible in terms of the difficulties and the preparation in organising yeah. one conference, never mind having yeah. to organise a second. Okay, Michael, I think we've, we've unfortunately come to the end of our time in our conversation today. But yeah. one last uh, quick question before I let you go. You know, your career path and your achievements will provide inspiration to, to many. So what words of wisdom would you have for some of our younger ASA members listening? Well, the first thing I said to them, and they're probably not listening if you're not a member because there's only members who probably will listen. If you're not a, a member of the ASA, do join, irrespective of what age you are. 
I know I can say personally, I've got enormous benefits, both professionally and personally. Unlike my time, the ag degree is very versatile now, Karina, uh, and offers endless possibilities to those who want to grasp them. So don't limit your horizons and don't be afraid to change direction. When you reach my stage, maybe at this stage of your life, if you're a young graduate, you think a career of 40 years is a million miles away. When you reach my stage in life, you will realize that a 40-year career is very short indeed. So make the best of it. Michael, it's a pleasure as always to talk to you and you're an encyclopedia of knowledge on the industry and you've been a fantastic mentor to me and to many, many others as we've navigated our way through ASA presidencies and various career paths. And I very much look forward to meeting you again in person next time, as soon as the rules will allow. Thank you very much. And thank you, Corina.